Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we're exploring some of the more strange and unusual and frankly weird stories of the Bible. And perhaps what I just read to you is both discombobulating and very strange. And I could understand why there's a lot going on in this text and we're going to get to talk about it. But one of the strangest things involves a food delivery service by nothing less than birds. And we're at a point in human culture and technology where we're starting to explore how to use flying objects to deliver us at least products and boxes like drones. And we'll see how far do we get with that. I have yet to have Uber Eats deliver me food by bird or drone. So we'll have to see where we go with this. But in Elijah's day, the idea of ravens bringing you food was unfathomable. And well, they couldn't understand Grubhub either. But for them, the the concept of a bird like a raven bringing you food that you were going to touch and eat and put in your body was abhorrent. It was absolutely against everything that they understood in their purity code, those laws in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And yet here is a holy man, the prophet Elijah, being told by God that this was going to happen. And then what does he do? So let's back up a little bit, though, and talk about this story. So we're in, obviously, the book of Kings, the first of them. The book has been split in two so that we could manage it. And it's all about the kings of Israel. And it comes to us in a time when the kingdom is not united. There's a larger northern kingdom of Israel. And then there's a small southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah is where Jerusalem is. Judah is where a lot of our scriptures are going to take place. But the northern kingdom of Israel was better off economically and politically on the global scale than the kingdom of Judah. And that's because there was a major trade route that connected Egypt to all of the large nations and peoples that were in the north and off to the east above the nation of Israel. And that trade route meant that a lot of people traveled through there, a lot of money and goods, and that they were part of the connection of other world powers. And this changed life in the northern kingdom significantly from life in the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah had going for it that the temple was down in Jerusalem. And what a wonderful epicenter of religious life. But more and more as the scriptures go on, the people in the northern kingdom start to regret having to travel three times a year if you're a male by the covenant down to that temple in worship and the first thing they do is start erecting little altars to their god all over the countryside on the high hills and in the mountains and of course this is against what the people of judah understand is we're supposed to all come together here at the temple and worship god you're not supposed to do that up there and so already the divergence and the division over religious practice was huge in the life of the israelites in the promised land But then we get to these kings, and very quickly, the kings in the north start to embrace life 
secularly, the life of the world, and that causes even bigger problems because it's not just them. They are modeling how to behave for their people. And when a king goes astray in their religion, it caused the entire people to do almost the same thing. And that's a tragedy. So what you're hearing here is a lot of talk about somebody named Ahab, who's apparently the son of Omri. Well, Ahab and Omri were two kings, Omri being the father, and then Ahab, his son, ascending to the throne after Omri's death. And if you studied a little bit of the Old Testament, you might recognize these names, maybe even Ahab a little more because of all of the interaction that the prophet Elijah and Ahab have together. But really, there's not a lot in there except to consistently say that they did a lot of evil in the sight of the Lord. And in case of Ahab, he's the most evil of any of the kings that had come before him. That's quite a superlative. That's not exactly a moniker that you want inscribed on your tomb. More evil than anybody who came before. That's not what you want. But what we actually would find if we looked at extra canonical sources, if we looked at historical record and ancient scripts from other nations and peoples, we would find that of all the kings of Israel, that Omri and Ahab were actually considered to be some of the most successful by worldly standards. Outside of the scriptures, they're very well revered. In fact, Omri was so successful in the area that other nations took to calling the kingdom of Israel Omri land in honor of him. The Bible doesn't seem to tell that story at all because the important story in the Bible is about the experience and relationship and journey with our God. And if you're going to forsake the Lord to worship Baal, a God from other peoples, then that's not going to be well recorded in the Bible. So therefore, Ahab and Omri start to lead the people in the northern kingdom astray. Not only that, but Ahab goes even further than his father. He marries a foreign woman, and there's a lot of prohibitions and caution against marrying a foreign woman, not because we don't like foreign peoples, but because foreign peoples tend to have different culture, and in this case, a different religion. And Ahab does exactly what the early authors of the text feared. He adopts his wife's religion, Baal worship. Baal is a storm god, a sky god, who the people in those days believed would control the rain. And if you didn't get a really good inundation of the rain, then the crops would fail and people would starve. There could be famine. There could be economic hardship. And so all of these things prompted people to consistently worship Baal. And that's exactly what Ahab does. He erects a house of Baal, a temple for Baal in Samaria in the northern kingdom, and builds an altar for him, all of things God is completely against in the Old Testament. And then it says he even went even further and made a sacred pole, and then it kind of leaves it there. But what does that mean? A sacred pole is a symbol and an image of Asherah, a female earthly fertility goddess. And so one of the things you see in a lot of the religions that were happening at the same time of the Israelites is that those people started to think of gods like them. Well, if I have a spouse, surely Baal should have a spouse. So they started to carve and create Asherah. And then Asherah poles started to appear in the temple. And that's a whole other prophetic thing that God is not happy about. God is a perennial bachelor who does not want to share his pad. So instead, you see here, they create a little house, and in that house, they create an image of Baal and an image of Asherah, and they start worshiping these people, hoping that the rain from Baal will bring fertility to the earth god as Asherah, and then everybody will have a lot of crops, not only to sustain their families, but also to sell and get very wealthy. You can start to see the worldly thinking entering in here. And Ahab continues to be very successful by 
secular worldly standards. And then comes this critique. And there's also a little interlude here. Let's talk about what this interlude means. So at verse 34, it talks about Hale of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. And if you go back to maybe your childhood experience in Sunday school or at a vacation Bible school or camp, you might remember the story of Jericho. It comes to us from the book of Joshua right after the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And there is a story about Jericho and the Israelites entering into the promised land and coming to this walled city of Jericho. There's a great story in there about how they conquer Jericho and get the walls to fall without having to lay siege equipment. So I encourage you to go read it. It's a lot of fun. Kids love reenacting it. It's a good, it's a good time there. But at the end, Joshua who is also a prophet. Sometimes we forget that. He's not just a military leader. He is a prophet. He curses the ground there and says that no one should rebuild Jericho and that if they do, it will be at the cost of their firstborn and their youngest child. And that's the testimony that we get here. They start to do things as if they've completely forsaken or even forgotten the Torah and the first books of the Bible in the, the reign of Ahab. So this guy rebuilds Jericho, and it says that he did. He actually names his, his son. His firstborn is Abiram, and his youngest is Segub, and both of them died. Now, it could just be that they fell ill or they had an accident, but more than likely, there was also an abhorrent practice in other religions in the area at the time, and that was child sacrifice. So that in order to bless and consecrate the foundation, they would have shed the blood of his firstborn, offered him up. And then to consecrate the completion and the setting of the gates, they would have offered up his youngest child. And that is completely against everything God has said. God says, I don't want you to sacrifice your children. That's not something that I want you to do. Moloch worship was heavy with that, and God explicitly condemns that. God says, it never even entered in my mind that you would do that. Don't do it. It's horrible. And so we have this interlude here saying that, it's for, that it was according to the very same word that Joshua prophesied, that this would happen. And then we come to chapter 17 and our prophet Elijah, who's the greatest prophet since Moses himself. Now, Elijah is a Tishbite from this little area here in Gilead in the northern part of the kingdom. And he goes before Ahab and he offers him this prophecy. There will be no, neither dew nor rain. There's no water coming to your land. And in that arid part of the country, they desperately need water. And so that comes and says that it will not happen until the word of God comes back. Because remember, the people have insulted God by worshiping a storm god, Baal, that they thought would be better at bringing them rain than our God. And so God says, I'm going to show you who really runs the rain. I'm going to show you who is really in charge of whether or not your crops get watered. And so no rain will come. And then because of this, God now has to take care of Elijah because most monarchs don't like it when you show up and give them the prophetic word. Most people don't really like it when you show up and tell them what's wrong with them and what God really thinks about their, their sinful ways. And so Elijah now has to kind of run away and find safety. God says, I'm going to send you to a place where I will keep you safe. I want you to go to the Wadi Sheriff. Now, a Wadi is a place that can be a full-blown river in times of, of the inundation from the rains, but it will often start to atrophy and kind of come down to a trickle like a creek, and then ultimately, as it does in our text, dry up completely. And so even by the title Wadi, Elijah knows that he's not going to be able to stay there forever. This is a temporary fix. Perhaps he's hoping that by the time the Wadi dries up, the rain will come back. But what we find is he's sent there and God says, you're going to go drink from the wadi. I'll make the water safe for you. You can drink the wadi. And oh, by the way, the ravens are going to feed you. Now, let's try to remember that Elijah 
is an Israelite, and he probably knows the commandments, all 613 of them, and he knows what the expectations are, and that is that he stay away from unclean animals. And again, as I said at children's time, this isn't animals that are unhygienic, but animals that are eating certain things or coming into contact with things that could cause massive illness and sickness or even kind of a breakout of a plague. And so God explicitly says to us in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15, that ravens, named as ravens, are um, detestable. You are not to eat a raven. So therefore, you can't eat what comes from a raven. A raven is a tainted bird. And so if you take something that a raven's had in its talons, then you are already starting to engage with something that is unclean. And if you touch something that's unclean, and especially if you eat something that's unclean, then that's going to make you unclean. And then you have to go through a process to become clean again. And so here is Elijah having to wrestle with, God told me to do this, but God has previously told me not to do this. What do I do? Is this a test? Am I supposed to point out to God that God has forgotten what the law is? Should I point out to God that I'm not supposed to eat ravens or touch them or eat things that come from ravens? I mean, you don't really want to wrestle over a piece of carrion that a raven's carrying in its talons, do you? Instead, God says to Elijah, I want you to go and trust that I will take care of you. And when the ravens bring you food, that's the food that you can eat. And the ravens seem to bring him pretty good food, bread and meat for morning and evening. Now, that's only two meals a day, and you and I probably eat more than two meals a day. But having meat for both meals was not a cultural standard at the time. So he's actually doing pretty well. Unless you get into what some scholars wrestle with that go, well, you know, what kind of meat was he getting? Was there, were the ravens scavenging carrion and bringing him that? I prefer not to think about that. I mean, this is God. Like, God can do incredible things, like raining manna from heaven. I'd like to think that God was sending good meat. To, I mean, I don't know that he's getting, like, filet mignon, but I like to think that Elijah is getting something decent to eat when the ravens bring it to him. And so he does for a time period. I mean, we have the process of time passing as the wadi atrophies until it's completely dried up. So day and night, he gets these meals brought to him. He's drinking from the wadi while it lasts, and then it ends. And then all of a sudden, God is about to do something that's probably even more terrifying to Elijah than the thought of breaking the purity code and eating food that's been brought to him by an unclean bird like a raven. Now God is saying, I want you to go to an unclean place. I'm going to send you to Sidon, to a little town called Zarephath. And there is a woman that will feed you and take care of you. Now, for most of us, we're, again, not of a purity code people, so we don't think about this. But Sidon is where Jezebel, the queen of Ahab, is from. And she's probably familiar that Ahab has... has her husband has had this encounter with Elijah and Elijah has given this edict by the word of God that there would be no rain. So I'm sure she knows who he is and he's about to go into her father's home territory and he's about to go there with a people that don't worship their God, the God of Israel, and they don't keep the purity code. So if he was uncomfortable eating from the ravens, he's really about to get uncomfortable going to a place that he never wanted to go and being with a people that he probably doesn't want to meet and they're not clean people. All concept of the purity code is about to be obliterated. You can't keep kosher in a land where people don't understand what kosher is. And so he's going to have an even bigger struggle. But God has kind of prepped him to trust God and to listen to God first before he starts overthinking things and listening to the world. Trust in me, says God. 
I fed you here at the wadi. I will take care of you there. In fact, Ahab has a habit of looking for Elijah to hurt him. And I'm sure he would never think to go look in Zarephath of all places. So that's where our story ends, with Elijah bravely and boldly following God's word to go to a foreign people in a foreign land and live there long enough to have some incredible encounters. And we're being invited to kind of consider that ourselves. What do we do with a text like this? How did this get in here in the Bible? What a strange story. And you have to think about, you know, how when you, when you do your biblical criticism, you have to start to go, how did we get this story? And who thought this is a good one? You know what, we'll save this one. Of all the things I did in my ministry, let's tell people about the time that I had to eat food from a raven. Let's talk about that. Did Elijah tell that story? Did this make Elijah feel good, this story? Did God start to illuminate people to it as they started to retell stories and compose the scriptures, both orally and in written tradition? Did God start to help them to have this story so that we could think about it? Ravens have important roles in the Bible, and sometimes we don't think about it. In American culture, we see them. I mean, there's certainly ravens around. I had a whole flock by my house the other day, and you might be very familiar with the cultural aspect of Edgar Allan Poe and his poem about a raven, but ravens are also a part of the scriptures. Now, they don't appear a lot, less than a dozen times, but when they do appear, there's an important role for them. For instance, you might recall that the first bird that Noah sent out to see if there was any dry land was a raven. And then even Jesus, in our call to worship and our gathering liturgy, starts to talk about, think about ravens. You worry about yourselves and about your children and your family and your friends. But ravens aren't farmers, and God feeds them. You are even more important to God. God will take care of you. And that's precisely what God reveals, not just to Elijah thousands of years ago, but to us here and now. And these stories are important because they kind of pave the way. This is a story that Peter would have known. The apostle Peter would have known this story. And yet he was living by purity code. He and the apostle Paul will have this epic battle of wills and words in Jerusalem to determine whether new Gentiles that are becoming Christians should have to keep the purity code and become Jews first. He will have an incredible miraculous vision where he sees a sheet coming down from heaven covered in unclean food. And God says, eat these things. And Peter argues with God and goes, I can't eat those. You told me not to eat those. Yes, I did. But sometimes you get so dialed into things that you don't think about people. And I'm sending you to an unclean people. And if you spend all of your time critiquing what they're eating and what they're wearing and how they talk and what they look like, then you won't pay attention to their hearts and their needs. And you won't love them because you're too busy thinking how much they aren't like you. And so again, God is going to use the law to help push people outside of their comfort zone to use experiences like what Elijah has at the Wadi and with the widow of Zarephath in order to bring about experiences that transform. It's an incredible story that continues with Elijah, where not only his experiences in contact with the widow and her son and the household, but the entire thing becomes an inspirational story. It is only after multiple miraculous things that the widow becomes a believer in God. And that changes things. Not just for her, but her son and their family for generations to come. 
our experience right now in this isolation and this pandemic have been incredibly difficult. Now, we could probably think back of all the horrible things that we've experienced or all the things that have been withheld from us because of this. And while I too appreciate those opportunities to mourn, although sometimes it feels more like uh, the wearing of sackcloth and ashes and the gnashing of teeth than mourning, sometimes we forget that even in the midst of that, God has been good. And sometimes we have to be willing to go back and look for those. Who have been the people that have helped us to carry through, even if they couldn't be physically present with us? Where have we found strength and hope in our time of need? And how have we been able to bless other people despite these incredible circumstances that we find ourselves in. And if you find that perhaps over the last 10, 11 months, you haven't been a blessing, then the good news of the text is it's never too late. You can begin today to be a blessing to people and to choose to be transformed by this experience with God and find new ways to be a blessing. For there is starting to be some excitement and some energy and some hopefulness of emerging from this isolation. But whether it happens tomorrow or six months from now, now is the time when we can prepare ourselves just like God prepared Elijah at the Wadi. So that we can trust God more and stop relying so much upon ourselves and the way things used to be. But perhaps God is doing a new thing and that God will redeem this difficult struggle that we've had. And help us to grow, not only in our experience and, and wisdom, but also in our hearts and our willingness to be forgiving, grace-filled people. It's a difficult struggle, but God can take any circumstance and help us to learn and grow from it. That's what it means to be perfected by God's love. And so we strive for that because that is the legacy of the text that we have today. Every step along the way, every experience that Elijah had helped him to grow, to trust God more, to be more willing and able to answer yes and go forth when God said it. It's a very difficult thing to be a follower of God. God asks things of us that we would never imagine choosing to do on our own. But because of God's presence with us and for us, because of God's providence and willingness to provide for us, just as God provides for the ravens and the lilies of the field, we can be assured that there is a way for us to not just survive, but to thrive in the midst of this. And because God is so good and God's grace is so abundant, we can help others do the same. And that is truly what is before us now. How do we look forward and find better ways? I always point to the fact that Christians are allowed to be sad. We are allowed to experience disappointment and to kind of yell and scream about that for a time called the Book of Lamentations. I appreciate its presence very much. We don't have to constantly put on a happy face and pretend that things don't affect us and make us sad because we are human beings. But the Book of Lamentations is only five chapters. And in the grand scheme of the Bible, there are more testimonies like this, that in the midst of our lives, when they seem mundane and mediocre, or when they seem extraordinary and even difficult, God is very present and provides. And those are the stories that God's people have been telling for countless generations now. Thousands and thousands of years are stories of perseverance and triumph, building a community, experiencing a relationship with God, and having everything be changed in the days ahead. And that is the testimony that we are invited to give when we look back, not with our own eyes and our own jaded view, 
But when we look with the eyes of Christ and we choose to have our heart reflect more of God's and less of ourselves, may it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.